Hi, it's Martin here again. I'm up to part three of a discussion with Matt about his days of teaching in La Germania. We've been going for so long now, it's the 10th of October. <laughs> and there's no editing here. <laughs> All right, Matt. Um, we've talked about working in the schools. No, actually, no, go back one step further. We've talked about you coming here, working in the school and living in the community. What I want to touch on now is a few rapid-fire questions. Um, who was your mentor while you were there? Or mentors? Well, I didn't really have one, except to say the closest thing I would have had to a mentor was the student that I formed a very good bond with who was just you know, a young lad that I started teaching in my class and taught over the next few years. And in the end, he had to leave school because he was so old, like he was 20 at the time, but I thought he was still only about 16. And he's the young lad that I formed the football team with. And he wasn't mentoring me as in I was, you know, double his age, but we just seemed to have an affinity. Well, we both liked football and we both seemed to get along and he seemed to be a very quiet and gentle student and a lovely student and he was a great artist and um, we were both skin brothers so when I got my skin name in the very beginning that was on about the first or second day that I was teaching it was jumper jimba which is uh, it means uh, water dreaming and or uh, waniara the great you know the great creator he was a jumper jimba and the funny thing is once you get your skin name you usually find the people that you're related to for not because you're related to them, very unlike white society, because you can be related to someone and, you know, hate their guts and not get along with them. But there, if you're related to them, like it's your brother or your sister or your mother or your father or, you know, you're their mother or their father or their aunt or their brother, you get along famously and it just worked out perfect. So... In a way, I suppose, he was my mentor because we got along so well and we spent so much time together, which was mostly around sport and at school because he was at school every day and he was a budding young artist. And I remember after he left school, he was bored and I felt really sorry for him because there's nothing to do in the community pretty much. So I went out and I bought all this art stuff. I bought about 200 bucks worth of art material so that he could start painting and drawing because he had a unique talent and he was a nice young lad and I just wanted to see him go somewhere not just sit around all day because they wouldn't let him come to school anymore because he was about 20 years old I didn't know that at the time I thought he was still about you know 16 I didn't know his age so I bought him all this art stuff to start making his own art because he just naturally draw at school and draw at home and draw anywhere he could and come out with these really beautiful, quite modern pictures. And his, his mother, who was actually my mother by Aboriginal law, she was a painter and she's still alive today and does the most beautiful paintings that you've ever seen. And that was the very first painting that I bought without knowing who she was. So there's another bit of, you know, synchronicity going on. But the sad thing was it only lasted two weeks and he couldn't maintain it because he couldn't see that it would, could lead somewhere and he could produce a lot of art and maybe, you know, get a bit of a show going or start selling things and actually then make really good money and make a good living out of his natural 
born talent. He was a beautiful drawer and a beautiful person. And I just wanted to see it go somewhere, but it never did. So you reached out and it went, it had some impact, but it didn't go down the path you were thinking because you were probably thinking from a non-Indigenous perspective? Probably, and I don't know how I could have handled it any better, but, um, yeah, there's probably better ways to have done it. But, like, they've got a local arts centre there and probably the only way it could work is if he was working in in or out of that arts centre. I can't remember whether it was running at that time, but I think it was, although they were mostly female artists. But if he'd had gone down there daily and started producing paintings and maybe sold a few and recognised his own yeah. talents and could see that it could lead somewhere, I could see that it could lead somewhere because I could see the quality of his drawings. Mm. And I was just trying to give him support so he would do that for himself and make good money and have, and have a living because there was nothing to do. There were no jobs. So it's only just clicked. Few like, jobs. It, it's only just clicked. I'm a bit slow to the party. You were there soon after the Marbo decision. Well, and, 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 and land titles and things like that. Was there a community side involved in that or you were so remote it wasn't even an issue? No, that didn't really come up, but they used to have a reenactment every year up the road at Wave Hill, which is near Wave Hill Station on Kalkarinji, and they used to, uh, that's where Vincent Lignari, um, you know, got that handful of yeah, sand that, yeah. poured poured in his hand by Gough Whitlam. Oh, wow. And they used to reenact that every year at Waddy Creek, so we used to go up to some, you know, some ceremonies that they used to have like that. And that one was definitely about land rights and they used to reenact that every year at Waddy Creek, which is the creek that runs through Cal Karinji, but it's not right next to Wave Hill, but it's not far from that property. It might be 20 k's or something like that, sort of on the edge of it. That's the next nearest Indigenous community. And that was 100 k's away? You said that was 100 first. k's away. And the, I think Wayfield Station was, you know, about 130. It's just a little bit further on. So you had your mentor. Um, who was my student. Who was your student. <laughs> sort of leading me down the right path because, you know, because I knew him. I met other people and fitted into the community and played footy. And he'd come around to our place every night. And my wife would cook tea and he'd eat tea with us most times. And then he'd just sit there and draw and talk about footy and, and then go home. Very different experience. You haven't mentioned his name. Well, he's got an original name. Uh, he had an original name when he was born, which was David. But that had to be changed because when he was young, someone with another name the same or the same sound died. So he had to change it to his next name which was actually Barnabas that got shortened to Barna. And the only reason I can say that is because I'm a white fellow, but if you're an Indigenous person, you can't even say either of those names because when someone passes away, to be respectful, and then I will just call him by this from now on to explain it, it's Kumanjay, which means you've passed away and you don't say their name to call them back to the earthly plane. In other words, it's sort of to free their spirit to let them not be disturbed and they go back to the dream time or the cosmos or wherever it is you go after you pass away. So 
he became Kumunjay in the end. And another example of that is while I was in the community, there was another young person, Matthew, um, and he, well, there were, a few, there were a couple of Matthews, but a Matthew passed away somewhere. So towards the end of my time in Large Amoni was a teacher, people couldn't call me Matthew because someone had died with that name, passed away. They don't say died, they say passed away. So my name was Kumanjay or Jumper Jimba because they had a skin name. Right. So they don't even call me Matthew to this day because it takes sometimes 20 years for that name to be able to come back and be used in the community and not affect the spirit of that person who's passed over. So it's Kuma... Kumanjay, Kumanjay. And I think it's just a name that doesn't sound like any other, so... It's like a universal name that you can say, and the simple way to explain it is, say someone passes away is called Barry, well, you can't have the name Barry or Larry or Gary because they all sound the same, so anything that even sounds the same has to be changed. So Kuman Jay was the... It's like a universal name. So in this context, that was the, the young adult you brought to Sydney to watch the AFL play. Yes, he was mad about AFL, which he was in the it community. He stayed at our place. Yeah, and he stayed at your place, which was pretty amazing. There's another connection. Because he came to Bathurst for a while, and I think we came to Sydney to watch the game, stayed at your place. And the funny thing was, he went down, he was a mad North Melbourne supporter, and we went down to watch the game. And as they came on and did the warm-up, I remember one of the Motlop brothers, and there's a lot of them, so I might have his name wrong, but say it was Daniel Motlop. You know, he went onto the field and he was coming off the field and it was Kumanjay's hero. And he was also an Indigenous player, so it was like a double whammy. It's his super, superhero player and he's an Indigenous, um, you know, athlete. So I called him over and I'm no one to call him over. I just went, hey, Daniel... You know, come over here, mate, I've got someone to meet you. And I introduced him to Kuman Jay with his, you know, name at the time. And he was so shy, because this was his nature, he's a very gentle uh, young man. He was so shy and embarrassed, he, he could not speak to him. He couldn't even look at him. And he actually turned around and faced the other way because he was so, not embarrassed, but so overwhelmed by the fact, it's like meeting Muhammad Ali or someone, it was just that big. Or the Prime Minister, it was massive. So I spoke to Daniel Motlop, who was, you know, the kindest, nicest guy you could ever meet. He was coming off the field after his warm-up, ready to play a game against the Swans. And he stayed there and talked to us for about three or four minutes, which is a lot. And when you've only got maybe ten minutes to get out and warm up and go back on the field. And I did all the talking because Kumanjay was so shy and wouldn't speak to him because he loved him and respected him as his hero. But the funny thing was, Daniel invited us into the change rooms and we went inside the change rooms, down the locker rooms, and we saw them warm up inside before they came out to the game. And in a funny way, maybe that was one of my gifts back to him. You know, I took him there and I bought the tickets and I got us there and I made all that happen. But it was probably, you know, more good luck than good management. We just happened to be in the right place. Daniel Motlop happened to be coming by. He was a nice guy. He aged. He came over and spoke to us and then took us in the change rooms before the game. So that would have been for him, that would have been just an astronomical thing from somewhere in the middle of Australia to go and actually see and meet your heroes live and go in their change room. It would be like me going to Liverpool 
and being invited in, you know, uh, before kickoff. It would be mm. unbelievable. And meeting your hero of all time, like for me to be Steve Gerrard, you know. Mm. So at the time it didn't seem that big, but upon reflection, you know, for him that was probably, well, hopefully one of the, you know, best experiences of his life. So you, I don't know where to go from here. And there's, there's more I want to ask you, but I won't out of respect to Kuman Kuman Jay. Kuman Jay. But I do know the backstory there. And that's given me a lot of insight into um, the thinking of stuff from a non-Indigenous perspective about the respect that's owed. I've heard that thing about you don't mention the name of yes. people that have passed, but I've never really understood the context of it and things like that. So what was the, probably the highlight of your time there? And, and probably firstly, what was one of the hardest things you had to deal with? Well, hardest the, hardest, the hardest thing is really easy. It's death and it happens all the time. And it happens almost every month, which might, I don't know if that sounds like a lot, it should be, because that'd be roughly a dozen times a year. How many are in the community? Oh, only about seven or eight hundred people. So okay. when when you get ten or twelve people dying every year, you know that's that's a truckload of people and that are passing people, away. You say. Yeah, anyone from one to eighty yeah. sort of thing. So it's everybody, and it comes out of left field all the time, and it's for all a whole range of reasons. Any reason you can think of for dying or getting killed, it'll be there in that year. And one minute someone's there, and the next day they're not, and it's as really stark as that. And it, it re, it, it, you know, it's very raw. It takes you back to your senses uh, and your very primal state of being because there's no protection. It's like, you know, that kid was in my class yesterday. They're dead today. And that, that sounds a bit melodramatic, but it's like that. And it mightn't be the kid in your class, but it might be the kid in the next person's class or someone's brother or someone's father or someone's mother or someone's sister. And it happens with that much regularity the first couple of times it happens, you go, oh, wow, you know, this is really big because in our society, you might hear of a funeral, you know, every now and then. And especially when you get older, there's, there's probably a few more funerals. But, you know, when you're young, it's just not like people are dying left, right and centre. But actually in those communities, they do. So the hardest thing is death because it strips you back to your raw essentials. It strips you back to the bone and it just reminds you. I can't actually find the words that just remind you how real everything is everything else is superfluous what you're eating what clothes you're wearing because you know you're alive that day and someone else isn't and the best thing you said the best thing yeah i think the best thing is i learned to share with people i learned to be more generous and because indigenous people share everything they share their food their money their houses, their dogs, you know, their family, their cars. It's a collective. It works different than we do. We have things and things are ours and things are mine. So it taught me about sharing. And I find sharing, I don't find sharing that difficult, and I never did, but it showed me a whole new light on how how far you can go with that. And you can share a lot more than what you think you can. So that was probably the highlight. You actually really learn to share. And maybe 
it's not just your money or your car or you know physical things maybe it's really sharing yourself well Matt I couldn't think of anything better to finish this with <laughs> no rapid fire questions <laughs> nah, too, good. too good at the moment we'll All just right. ease that up um, I don't know what we're going to do with this neither do you but at least we've done it yeah no it was really good Thanks, man. Thoroughly enjoyed it.